So let us stand out of reverence for the reading of the Word of God. Genesis 49. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men. And in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. For their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are... uh, darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant, He bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward. For thy salvation I wait, O Lord. As for Gad... Raiders shall raid him, but he shall raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, 
From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of all my ancestors, up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. All these, the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with a blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the grave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite, for a burial site. There they buried Abraham with his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. You may be seated. For the situation, Jacob's 147 years old. He's not going to live much longer. He's weak, he's frail, he can barely sit up in bed. He has all of his sons in front of him. And now he's going to prophesy their future. Now that doesn't simply mean he's going to predict what's going to happen to them. Remember the prophetic word is not predict, just prediction. The prophetic word is that power that God uses to call, cause things to happen. That the prophetic word gives content and order to the future. What the prophetic word says happens. So Jacob here is not just saying things that he's thought a lot about, meditated upon, decided these would be good things to tell about his sons. Jacob had no idea what he was going to say before he said it. You know why? Because these words did not come from him. They come from the living God himself. And when the word is spoken from the mouth of Almighty God, it affects the entire future. Hence, the title of our chapter again, as of last week, Jesus Christ and the Future of Mankind. Because in this chapter... Jacob, as God's mouthpiece, tells us what's going to happen in the future of mankind. From Jacob to the second coming of Christ. That's how important it is. Now he's predicting these things in two phases. The first phase, he's prophesying what God's going to do in the life of the 12 sons of Israel from Jacob to the birth of Jesus. 
And the second phase is what God's going to do in the life of his people from the birth of Jesus to the second coming of Christ. So it's bigger than just the family of Jacob. Understand that. It's not just concerning the future of 12 men. It's concerning the future of the whole family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the birth of Christ, and then from the birth of Christ for the entirety of the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to the end of the world. Now let's review just a little. Last week we looked at uh, Reuben and Levi and Simeon. Now all of these men that are standing before him, remember, are godly men. They're virtuous men. In the, in the recent years, Joseph had led them to Christ and to repentance. Remember, they came to get food from Joseph, who was the number two man in all of Egypt. And uh, the, uh, Joseph wanted to lead them to repentance for what they did to him earlier in life when they sold him into slavery. He wanted to see, are these men the same? Or are they different men? And he put them through a series of tests, and he led them to renewed faith, and he led them to repentance. So all the men in chapter 49, now as Jacob is speaking to them, are godly men. you got to remember that. They didn't used to be, but they are now. Reuben, his oldest son, committed some terrible sins in his past, for which God has forgiven him, and he has repented. And yet God says at the same time, you're not going to have a place of, of preeminence in my family because of what you did so many years ago. I've forgiven you of your sins. God has forgiven you of your sins. You're a new man. But the consequences of that sin that you committed when you slept with the wife of Jacob, not Reuben's mother, when you slept with that woman, God's forgiven you of it but the consequences are still going to be in effect in your life. Levi, uh, uh, Reuben, uh, Simeon and Levi, you're both virtuous men. You're both godly men. I've forgiven you of all your sins, but there's a sin you committed in your past of which I forgave you, uh, of violence, and of inner blind rage, killing every man in a whole city because one of them raped your sister. Uh, not out of righteous indignation, but out of blind rage. I've, God's forgiven you. But you still got to deal with the consequences of that sin. And as a result, Simeon and Levi, you don't get any land in the promised land. You are going to be propertyless. Simeon, your tribe's going to be the smallest tribe, and uh, it's just going to ultimately be absorbed in the tribe of Judah. Levi, you're not going to have a tribe, but your descendants are going to be scattered, scattered all over uh, the land of Canaan, which is going to be a blessing for the people that live in the land of Canaan. That means there's going to be Levites in every town, every village, every city, every, every aspect, every inch of the land of promise is going to be a Levite. Now, what is a Levite? A Levite is a teacher of truth. 
He's a preacher of righteousness. Every time any of the sons of Israel saw a Levite, they saw Christ because he was ministering these ceremonial laws that were all symbols of what Christ would do. So the curse on Simeon and Levi proved to be a blessing to the rest of the people of Israel. Why didn't God, why, why did God allow them to feel the consequences? Why didn't God say, I've forgiven you of your sin, so forget the consequences? God does this sometimes. God does uh, not in, God does not spare people from some of the consequences of their former actions because he wants to heal them of those actions. He wants to be a physician and not a judge. And so the sins that they committed earlier in their life, God had forgiven them. But God wanted them to bear the consequences of, so it will always be there to remind them of what they're capable of doing so they won't do it again. And to remind their descendants, don't do what your fathers did, or you may suffer the consequences your father suffered. And then we studied about Judah. Uh, Judah was the great, 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 great granddaddy of Jesus. And notice what it says about Judah. I love this. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. We talked about this last week. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies or shall seize your enemies by the throat. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, this is obviously a messianic promise. It's obviously referring to a descendant of Judah who was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what it says about this descendant of Judah. It says that all of his brothers and all his father's sons will bow down in submission to him. All of the people of God will bow down on his great, to this great, great grandson of Judah. That he shall have his hand on the throat of all of his enemies. That is, those who are his enemies don't have a chance. He will destroy all of his enemies and everybody that rises up against him. He is a conqueror. He is a great victor. He is a lion's whelp. You better not mess with him. He's a strong, ferocious lion. He has no body that really is a threat to him. And that's where the secret is given away. We know who the lion is. Because in Revelation 5.5, 5, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And to this lion, there is a scepter given. The scepter is a symbol of rule and of authority. And that ruler's staff, that scepter, that symbol of authority, shall, shall not leave between his feet until Shiloh comes. And then we saw what the word Shiloh meant. The word Shiloh in Hebrew means the one to whom it belongs. 
So what he's saying here is, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the one to whom the scepter belongs comes. Who you reckon that is? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So that's a prophecy that someday there'll be a great king that will govern all the world come from Judah's line. And as a result of that, the last line in verse 10, and to him uh, shall be the obedience of the peoples, plural, tribes, tongues, races, nationalities. They're all going to put their faith in him. They're all going to obey him. They're all going to bow before him. That once he suffered the death of the cross, God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So here you have the Messianic prophecy that the Messiah is going to be the king of kings. And all the peoples of the whole earth are going to bow down in submission to him. Verse 11, unusual. He ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garment in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. And his eyes shall be darker than wine, not be dull from wine because he didn't get drunk and his teeth shall be whiter than milk. Now, those are unusual figures of speech, but the biggest business in Canaan in those days was, was grapes and the wine business. That if you wanted to make money, get into the wine business, raise grapes, make wine, and you become rich very quickly. So here he says that with this one to whom the staff belongs, comes, God's people are going to experience uh, abundant prosperity, abundant blessing. You wouldn't think of tying your donkey to a grapevine and injuring it. You want to cultivate that vine and keep it healthy so that you can bear grapes. So what does it mean when you tie your donkey to a grapevine, you don't care whether it breaks off a branch or not? You have so many grapes it doesn't matter that you are so blessed with the abundance of blessing. Uh, why would you uh, wash your clothes in wine unless you want to change a white shirt into a purple shirt? Why would you change your, uh, wash your clothes in wine? Who would wash his clothes in wine? Only somebody that has so many grapes. He doesn't care. So it says that the people of God are not only going to be submissive to this mighty conqueror, but they're going to experience such abundance of prosperity that they will have every reason to praise the Lord. Verse 12, his eyes are uh, darker than wine is what it says. If your version says his eyes are dull or red from wine, that means he got drunk, and Jesus didn't get drunk. So you scratch out that little phrase, and instead of putting his eyes are dull from wine, his eyes are darker than wine. 
teeth whiter than milk. It points to beauty and attraction and health and strength. Then last week, we also talked about Zebulun. Verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell at the seashore. He shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Prophecy here is that the descendants of Zebulun will live on the Mediterranean coast, and they will prosper in maritime business. They'll prosper in ships and in fishing. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey. Now, that's not a criticism. That's a compliment. Only kings rode donkeys. And what it says in here, it's a raw-boned donkey. That is a description of praise rather than some kind of criticism. That Issachar is going to be a strong, strong tribe and uh, people lying down between the sheepfolds. He's going to be at peace. He's strong. He feels secure. And so he rests and relaxes between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. That either meant he became a slave or was in the slave trade. But every I want you to notice going through these, this is the way life turned out for the 12 tribes of Israel from Jacob to the birth of Jesus. 18, I love this one. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. Dan, uh, famous for judges, known for its administration of justice. It's like a horned viper. Horned viper is just a small little snake, but it'll kill you. And so if you're riding a horse and that little horned viper bites the leg of the horse and not only kills the horse, it causes the horse to fall down and you fall down and kills you as well. So here, here is a small crowd, a small little group of, uh, of tribe, and yet powerful enough single-handedly to destroy enemies much bigger than it is. By the way, Dan was bordered on the land of the Philistines. So you put all those together. Tribe of Dan, known for its judges. The tribe of Dan may be small, but single-handedly, it could wipe out a whole nations of Philistines. And who was a judge from the tribe of Dan? None other than Samson himself. Now, verse 19, uh, verse 18. Uh, Jacob in, uh, has an outburst here in the midst of all these things. He says, For thy salvation I wait, O Lord. I'm learning about what the future holds for the people of God. And oh, how I long for that salvation to come. It's something only you can bring. And I long for salvation. Now let me tell you about that word salvation. Because that word salvation and the way it's changed in meaning shows you what's happened to the church. The word salvation there means to make wide. Wide. 
to give space, to give me a lot of room. If I have a lot of room, I have a lot of, of uh, space to live and uh, raise a family, I'm secure. I'm at peace. So then the, 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 the uh, imagery of to make wide, how does a family get a roomy place? By deliverance from enemies. You don't have any fear from your enemies. You, you, you have been delivered from them. And uh, you've probably been delivered from them because you beat them, because you conquered them, because you gave, got the victory over them. So throughout the Bible, whenever you see the word salvation, read into it the words deliverance by conquest and by victory over your enemies. But what does salvation mean today in the Christian church? Escape. We're a bunch of escapists. We got to escape our enemies. They're just too strong for us. There's too many of them. We got to escape it some way or another. Hopefully there'll be some kind of rapture that'll just snatch us out of here so we can escape our enemies. Nowhere in the Bible, everywhere, does the word salvation mean escape. Nowhere. Salvation is not escaping from your enemies. Salvation is being delivered from them by conquest of them and by victory over them. See how the church has changed? The church one time saw itself as having a religion of conquest, as conquerors, and now we see ourselves as a bunch of poor, weak, helpless people who have to escape. We're such hopeless victims. We have to escape from all these mighty enemies. Never means escape. <coughs> Always means delivery by conquest. Deliverance by conquest. You see, what Christianity used to be in the Old Testament, the New Testament, on, on up in the Middle Ages through the Reformation was a religion of conquest. We delivered ourselves from our enemies by getting the victory over them. Now, when I say victory by conquest, we're not a bunch of Muslims. We don't conquer our enemies by the sword like the Muslims do. We conquer our enemies by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that is how. We get roomy places. That's how we make room for our descendants to live at peace. That's how we get deliverance from anybody or anything that would do us harm, by conquering them. What does God call us in the book of Romans? Hyper-conquerors, more than conquerors, in the name of Jesus. So understand, this language sounds strange in modern American eyes. Who would want to conquer anybody? 
me. I would want to conquer Satan, and the Bible says Satan has been conquered through the blood of Christ's cross. I would want to win the victory out of all those enemies who are trying to do the church of Jesus harm and trying to mislead us and trying to seduce us. That's how we get the victory. We get the victory through faith in Christ and through the use of his word. So understand that, that when we read some of these things in Genesis 49, modern Christians just don't have any niche to put that in. They just can't think Christians are conquerors. The only way we get deliverance from our enemies is by conquering them. I thought we're supposed to escape from them. Look at Israel. Israel escaped from Egypt. After God drowned them all. Only after God killed all the firstborn sons. Only after God destroyed the agriculture. Only after God destroyed the economy. Only after God drowned Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. Israel didn't escape. <laughs> Israel was delivered by the omnipotence of Almighty God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. All of these verses have to do with the birth of Jesus. And so go to verse 25. There was an old man near the temple. And when Jesus was born, they brought this baby Jesus to this old man so he could see him. He says in Luke 2, 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, that is, the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when his parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. What did I see? A little baby. And he said, in looking at that little baby Jesus, I'm looking at the salvation of the people of God. What was Jacob saying all the way back there in Genesis 49, thousands of years earlier? I could hardly wait to see the salvation of my God, which is to be found only in the Messiah, 
for my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared, ordained, predestined, in the presence of all peoples from every category of life, every nationality, every race, a light of revelation, not just to the Jews, but to all the non-Jews as well, and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed, preordained, predestined for the fall and the rise of many and in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts shall be revealed. So you see, throughout the history of the Hebrew people, throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of the 12 tribes of people, all the way back to uh, Eve, God's people have longed for the salvation that only Christ can give. That little baby, Simeon saw when his parents brought him to the temple to be circumcised. That little baby was the conqueror of evil and of Satan. Trust him to be your conqueror. Believe, uh, is your religion a religion of conquest? That you seek to conquer your enemies, not by the sword, literally, but by the sword of the word of God empowered by the Holy Spirit? Or are you one of these poor little victimized people? Woe is me. Nobody likes me. I think I'm going to go eat worms. I can hardly wait to escape. That is not the religion of the Bible. Now we come to verse 19. And we're talking about Gad. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him and but he shall raid at their heels. In other words, uh, the tribe of Gad is going to be attacked very frequently throughout his history, but he's going to attack them right back and conquer his enemies. Verse 20, As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Asher and his descendants will be known for good cooks. They know how to cook throughout history. And by the way, uh, the people of Asher lived in one of the most uh, prosperous soils and fertile soils where they could grow great vegetables. Verse 21, Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Naphtali will be a great conqueror too. Swift, shrewd in his fighting of the enemy, but the weapon that he'll use to fight his enemy will not be swords and spears. It will be words. The ability to write. The ability to produce books. Teach your children how to write. Teach them how to read first. They're not going to know how to write unless they know how to read. Teach them how to read. 
uh, be discriminating in the books that you let them read. Don't just let them read any book. Make sure these are the books that, that God used that have wisdom in it, that are based upon the Word of God. Teach them how to write. Have them write things, paragraphs, papers. Grade them not only for the content, but grade them for the way they write. Is the grammar uh, correct? Do they know how to use figures of speech? Teach them how to write. Because that's the most powerful weapon we have today against the world. And then he said, by the way, there is a great publishing house that publishes only 17th century Presbyterian Puritan books. It's called Naphtali Press. So look it up. There's some great books there. And then you have this uh, promise about Joseph. Joseph is a beautiful bough a fruitful bough by spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were, were agile. So here's a uh, prophecy about how Joseph's descendants are going to be, and it proved to be the same. He's going to be a powerful man. His descendants are going to be powerful people, fruitful people. They're going to be strong. They're going to be uh, courageous. When people attack them, they know how to resist those attacks. And Joseph was always being gunned for. He was always being shot at. But he knew how to handle the threat of his enemies. Why? Because verse 24 but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Now look at all the things Jacob calls God here. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your father who helps you, and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above Blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have surpassed all the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of one distinguished among his brothers. It's quite a poem, isn't it? Great use of figure of speech. What does it mean, the hands of the mighty one? The hands in the Bible, do a study of them. The hands of God are figures of speech for the powerful display of God's almighty unlimited power in behalf of his people. And a mighty one of Jacob, no one compares to him. He's a shepherd. That's where David learned that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not watch. You think that's where Jesus learned that he is the good shepherd? He's a shepherd. He knows how to care for his people. He's a stone of Israel. What is it to call God a stone? To call God a rock? Can't be moved. He can't be changed. 
Nothing from outside him can change what's inside him. He is a rock, faithful, always the same, immovable, stable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the God of your father. Remember, Joseph, where you came from. Remember what your roots are. And remember that the way God has blessed me, Jacob, and the way God is going to bless you is greater than all the blessings that came upon the men and women that were before us. The blessings are going to impact every aspect of your life. You're going to uh, agriculture, childbirth, family, these blessings that God's going to bring to you are going to be higher than the everlasting hills. I wonder why God called hills everlasting. Have any idea? Because they are. When Jesus comes back again at the end of the world. He's not going to bring a new heavens and a new earth that's never been in existence before. He's going to bring, renew what's already here and make it even greater. The everlasting hills are everlasting hills. There's two Greek words for new, new heavens and new earth. One word for new can mean new as not ever having been in existence before. That's not the word used in the Greek Bible for the new heavens and the new earth. The word that's used is renewed, rejuvenated. That the new heavens and the new earth is the renewal and the regeneration of this earth that God created 2,000 years ago. So remember, when you drive through the Appalachian Mountains, everlasting hills. Those mountains are going to be there 10 billion years from now. And then one more son. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the blessing, in the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. The word Benjamin means right-hand man. It's all, it all means that the people that came from the tribe of Benjamin were mighty soldiers, mighty warriors. They knew how to fight in battle, and they knew how to literally conquer the enemy. As a result, you read the wars of David and the various other wars of the Lord in the Old Testament. And you'll find that the descendants of Benjamin were all the great archers and all the great people who knew how to use slingshots throughout the history of the Old Testament. Benjamin was a right-hand man. By the way, if you an archer or be a slingshot thrower <laughs> in Benjamin's army, you had to be right-handed. Okay, I don't know why, but now we come to the very end. 
all these, the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to him when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Now listen to these last words. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the grave that's in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, underline that, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. And the field and the cave that's in it purchased from the sons of Heth. Joseph, sons, people of God, 12 sons of Israel, church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I die, I want you to bury me in the promised land. That pointed the people of God to the future. One of the reasons Egypt fell is it became present-oriented. It lost its future orientation. Therefore, its money failed, and all it was concerned with was getting food in the present to keep from starving. And what Jacob is saying to Joseph and his sons, don't be present-oriented. You'll become reckless, irresponsible, and immoral. Always live and plan for the future. Take my body back there and bury me there. Because though we don't own it now, someday the whole land of Canaan will be owned and populated by the covenant people of God. Verse 33, when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now don't overlook that verse. He had prophesied to his sons what the future would hold for them and for all the people of God of the second coming. And then, laid down in bed, threw his legs up, and breathed his last. Just like you do when you go to bed, you pull down the sheets, the covers, you get in the bed, probably pull your feet up, bend them, take a deep breath, sleep and die like that just to bed pulls up his feet takes his last breath and dies the only way you can do that is if that night you had a clear conscience if at the end of your life you had no regrets. More regrets you have on how you've lived throughout your life, the harder it'll be when you die. 
I knew a man, lived a long, prosperous life. Somebody asked him, would you do anything over again? Very arrogantly, he said, no. I tremble. There's all kinds of things I'd like to do over again. I praise God that God has forgiven us, cleansed our conscience, given us a new life. So what is Jacob saying here? Remember this last sentence. I'm through. I'm not going to talk anymore. Remember this last sentence. Live. So that when your time comes to die, all you have to do is die. Lord, may we be faithful to you to the last. Trust your faithfulness to us to perfect that great work you've already begun in us. In Jesus' name, amen.